Welcome to Scores and Fours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by myself, sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host, Ms. Emily Reese. Today, I'm going to talk about the classical guitar. And I just think it pairs really well with Sherry, so we're going to talk about Sherry today on the show. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month or as much as you want on our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash scoresandfours. And there we always put up a playlist and a wine list and any other links that we talk about. Including merch coming soon. Jill Mott, hello. Hello, Emily Reese. How's it going? It's, we'll be better after I've tasted some sherry. I know, That's right? What, <laughs> pretty much every day should be. I have some friends that are diehard sherry lovers, so this will be... A, a shout out to those homies. I never knew what Sherry was until I met you. Much like I, I feel like I say every other episode, I never knew what Blue was until I met <laughs> some Dilmont. <laughs> well, this is, it's, it, I love that we're doing this because I've thought on many occasions, I've been like, why don't we ever talk about not just Spanish guitar, but like classical guitar. Like it's a classical instrument. Like why are we? Why isn't it considered part of the greater orchestra? Why are they never played together? Blah blah blah. And mm-hmm. you're always like, because it doesn't belong there. And I'm like, that's well, not. I- that, I'm like, that's not an okay answer. <laughs> and of course, it is in some regards. But I always, I think that I'm excited to dive deeper into classical guitar. Yeah. And whenever I hear it, it usually has. I shouldn't say whenever. But usually when I'm listening to it, it has some sort of inflection that reminds me of southern Spain specifically. Mm. So I thought, what better? I mean, we rarely on this episode do I think this would taste good with this music or this wine hails from this region that we're talking about a composer. So Mm -hmm. we usually don't do that, but today we're kind of going to do that. Kind of a little. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we might just hop to to Mexico for half a minute in the 20th century as well, but... They but, drink sherry in Mexico, though. That's cool. <laughs> Good. <laughs> It'd be great if I pulled out the mezcal and I'm like, well, actually, yeah, <laughs> that'd just be a really smelly booth. Yeah. I wouldn't mind. It would smell like nuts and fire. Good. And I'd leave and saucy. And a tiny so, bit like tequila a little. would smell a little bit like that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that'd be kind of Mezcal's cool. so much cooler than tequila, though. Well, I, In my I, personal I, world, I mean, sorry. Yeah. It's just, that's me. That's okay. Just being a... Jerk yeah. over here, and I'm I wasn't a jerk about guitar not belonging. Like I I don't know that I ever really worded it like that. Like, She's like it beep, doesn't belong, beep, you know? Yeah. Beep, beep. <laughs> no, seriously, it's on just reverse. you know it's kind of like um, I, I often think of it like you know you think of opera too. So there are opera aficionados who know very little about orchestral music, and there are orchestral music aficionados who know very little about opera. And yeah. the same kind of goes with the classical guitar. And there are some other kind of niche worlds of the, you know, quote unquote, entirety of classical music that kind of just have their own little corner in in a room, you know. I wonder if that's kind of like saying in my world, there are a lot of folks that know about wine and don't know about spirits, but I think that it needs to be like hyper honed. And it's more like saying you can have aficionados that really know wine, but they don't know natural wine. Yeah. And almost flip flop that a lot of natural wine folks that don't know about the classics Mm -hmm. that, you know. Yeah. Old school wine yeah. speak, yeah, as no, it were. Definitely. I mean, because the 
the depth and breadth of the repertoire for classical guitar is huge. And then there's a lot of it there. So, you know. Well, and yeah. today we're going to be talking about with the, with regards to Sherry, like I'm a huge proponent of Natty Wine. And on the show, we nine out of 10 times talk about nat- Natty Wine. Mm-hmm. Sherry is so not Natty. <laughs> I mean, there are some Sherry's out there that are made in more of a natural vein, but Sherry is one of those few beverages that I'm not going to go all Harvey's on you, which is like um, saying I'm going to go all Yellowtail on you. Mm-hmm. But like, it's not that industrial, but I will, like, I would drink, say, Tio Pepe, a very famous sherry that I wouldn't drink it right now because I have Mm -hmm. access to other sherries. But if I'm on the island of Tahiti Mm -hmm. and I really want some sherry and I'm, like, beached there or I, like, am working there and all of a sudden I'm like, God, I really am Jones and Risham sherry. I can, like, not slum it. Yeah. But I can can drink some. Sherry is just one of those things that wines that just brings me somewhere so quickly like you smell it and you are on those streets and you mm-hmm. smell it and you are listening to the music we're about to listen to. And same goes when I hear some of the artists that we'll be listening to today. I just want to be drinking sherry. It's like I, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm drinking coffee, that's perfect. But if I'm drinking sherry, it's better. Nice. Well, I can't wait to taste some. I know that you have allowed me to taste some really delicious sherry in the past and I'm Super excited to taste it. So should we get some in our glass so that we can have it ready for when we listen to our first guitar piece? Yes. That's <laughs> a really good idea. <laughs> um, well, as I'm pouring it, let me talk a little bit about the history of sherry to get us to why it is the way it is and what it is. Well, I'll say what is sherry first Yeah, as we're tasting it. Yeah. We'll that's... just jump right there. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to be tasting a biologically inclined sherry, which I'll go there in a while. Okay. Um, I tend to say that a lot on this show. I'll go there in a while, but first let's drink something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, grab that glass. Okay. So we're tasting right now uh, manzanilla, which is a type of sherry from San Lucar de Barrameda, which is part of the sherry triangle. And we'll talk all about that in a while. Again, really good at saying that on, on the <laughs> show apparently. So manzanilla is a style. In order to call something sherry, there are a few like bullet points that it has to fulfill. I Number- just put my glass down. I'm like, it's going to be a minute before I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Truth. Go on. So this wine, sherry needs to be from southern Spain, created from within the sherry triangle. So it's, there's a, three villages. One is called Jerez de la Frontera. One is called San Lucar de Barrameda. And one is called El Puerto de Santa Maria. And if you draw a little triangle, it's called the Sherry Triangle. And it needs to be from in and around that area. That's the first thing. Second thing is it needs to be, it's fortified. And by that, there is a neutral grape spirit that has been added to this to stabilize it. Um, And we'll talk about why that is later. Third, it needs to be affected by what's called flor which flor is a yeast, a collection of different yeast strands that are on top of a not totally topped up barrel. You'll have some yeast that is uh, that grows, sometimes naturally, sometimes it's pitched. And then um, fourth, it needs to be aged in what we will, will call a solera system, which a solera system is a fractional blending system that allows you to put new wine in, it blends, and you're taking old wine or oldish wine out. And so you have a very consistent product. So those that's what sherry is. 
Okay. Now let's smell it. Oh, yes. I want a shirt that says I love acetaldehydes for anybody that makes T-shirts. I heart acetaldehydes. Look it up. I'm not going to spell it because I'll be talking for way more time. <laughs> it just smells like almost like caramel Werther's original. What about haystack? And what about almonds? Because when you smell the Oloroso, you'll even think more along the caramel lines. You smell like yeast and bread dough. Definitely too? bread. Yeah. Okay. Yes, bread. Mm-hmm. Pretzels even maybe. Christmas. Do you smell like the ocean? Get it on the palate. Okay. That means drink it up, baby. Mm-hmm. Wow. It tastes barnyardy to me. It yep. tastes much more barnyardy yep. than it smells. What about the little saltiness? Do you notice a little salt component? I, I do. Touch of salt. And this this is one some people say that sherry needs to be consumed right away or, you know, within a year of being bottled, a couple of years of being bottled. This was bottled uh, almost a year ago. And so it's, you know, it's fairly fresh, but this is also this producer has a little bit more depth, but we'll we'll get there. Why does it make me want a steak? Because sherry, unlike everyone in the world that thinks that red wine should be paired with steak and vice versa, people should drink sh- – they should. I'm saying should because it's <laughs> my it's a rule in my book. Steak should be paired with sherry. Really? Steak, when you put it on the grill or when you caramelize it in a pan, yeah. you get something called like a Maillard reaction yeah. that is like what we would think of as like those caramelized notes, you know, things that mm-hmm. are very inherent in human nature to want those things. Yeah. And sherry has some of that as well that – you smell these like umami, like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, so why not oh, my God, twice? Why are we just oh, my Godding once? I know, high five. So, yeah, that's why. <laughs> I mean, that's I, why. It, I didn't even think the word. I saw the picture of a steak and saw myself eating a steak as I took that first drink and, like, breathed out. I was like, steak. Yeah. That I don't know how often that's ever happened to me with anything I've ever drank like that before. Well, props, you should just go get your sommelier certificate yeah. right now because that's what <laughs> one of the big, big components of that is wine and food pairing. Um, well, so now that I have sherry in my glass, start, let's start the guitar conversation because oh, yeah, yeah. I want to... So amazing. Guitar, first of all, uh, plucking a string that's been stretched across some kind of box with a neck has been around for hundreds of years. So let's just get that out of the way right now. (laughs) There are a bunch of different shapes and sizes and ancestors to the guitar. And there are people online who have done beautiful jobs explaining, you know, tracing, maybe even perhaps back to Greece, uh, where certain things came from. Uh, There was a Baroque guitar, which is much different than the modern classical guitar. Let's start with the modern classical guitar because it's the easiest one to hear. I mean, okay. we know what it sounds like. Yeah. So this is a, um, you know, not an acoustic guitar that like Ted Nugent plays or anything, but a classical guitar um, has nylon strings. The fretboard is a little wider. There are some other uh, characteristics that are a little different, obviously. Isn't like the, is the wood, like obviously the wood can be different, but is the mm-hmm. wood actually thicker? In like a, like the box, it, the box seems like there's more resonance in a classical guitar than like a typical like electric acoustic or something like that. An electric acoustic is going to have less resonance than even an acoustic guitar, just if we think about all the guts that have to be inside that you're okay. losing out. So an acoustic guitar by itself, without any cutaway, without any electronics inside of it, is going to have a really big, beautiful, warm, loud 
tone and sound. Um, but the biggest difference other than the shape, you know, when you think of the sound is the difference between steel strings and nylon strings. So acoustic guitars have steel strings. Yeah. And modern classical guitars have nylon strings. Before 1900s, it was gut. So they used gut strings, mm. and those have an even different sound, right? So, I mean, that's what violins and stuff used in the Baroque era, too, was gut. You mean like gut? Like, like sheep gut. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like intestines. Word. The classical guitar, as we think of it today, that concept of the way it's built was invented by a man in Spain named Antonio de Torres Jurado. And he's usually just called Antonio Torres or Antonio de Torres. And there are Torres guitars. Torres. I know, I know. Torres. Torres. How's that? Is that better? Torres. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Do you want me to do it like that the whole way? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Torres... Uh, made guitars in Sevilla. I was going to say Seville, but let's not anglicize that. Yeah. <laughs> say Sevilla. My eyes just got She's really just big like, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so he made guitars in Sevilla from 1852 to 1870. And then he moved to Almeria, Almeria in 1870, I think, and started making guitars in 1871 into 1893. So you know, 20 years of guitar making in Sevilla and 20 years of guitar making in Almeria. And let's listen to it before I talk about how... Sure. Yeah. So let's listen to a piece by a friend of his named Francisco Tarrega. And Francisco Tarrega... Nice! ...was a composer and a performer. And Francisco Tarrega is considered the father of classical guitar. So first we're going to listen to... Probably Tarrega's most famous piece called Recuerdos de la Alhambra. Alhambra. I know, Alhambra, which is a place I've always wanted to see. I think it would be amazing. Uh, But anyway, this is performed by Andres Segovia. And Segovia was the most famous or one of the most famous guitarists of the 20th century. And we'll talk about him uh, again a little bit later in the show. But anyway, here's Recuerdos de la Alhambra by uh, Tarrega to Scores and Pours. The Scores and Pours. first CDs, no, my, the first CD that I ever bought when I was living in Spain, almost 20 years ago, had this, it was an Andre Segovia double set, <laughs> and nice. had this on it, nice. has this on it, yes, I should say, yes. yeah, so good. So good. play another one of his can we play that because i this is so beautiful and it like does mm-hmm. recuerdos means um like memories of the alhambra yep. and it does have this like moorish tone let's listen to capricho arabe 
I was looking at this site because I was curious. Yeah. I was listening to myriad sites about why the the classical guitar is not incorporated into an orchestra. Yeah. And some idiot. Well, well, I mean, you know, obviously I mean, a great a great player probably, but says because of the like smoothness of the attack, which they kind of made it into talking about the length of a note, the persistence of a note, the buildup of a note. Well, yeah, that's <sighs> that part he was right on, I think. But here's the thing. I, I, I don't know when you and then he compared it to the trombone. So, OK, I'm sorry. Not an idiot. I, <laughs> I want to retract that because, I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But I think yeah. it seemed like sort of, I don't know, uh, if you're going to talk up a buildup of a note... I mean, so are we saying that when I blow into a note, it can get more intense and then it fades as it, like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you pluck a guitar, there's, that's really the only way you can play a guitar is to pluck a string, yep. right? I mean, that pluck, like, there's no other instrument in the orchestra that sounds like that, which I guess is the whole point of having different instruments. Like, there's also no other instrument that sounds like an oboe. But the point is, is that there's no other instrument that has that kind of attack that a guitar has in that range. So if you think about, like, a piano, a piano can really be a beautiful added color to an orchestra, and that can happen in the upper register of the piano. That can also happen in the low register of the piano. One of the things I think of most is that part in Shostakovich 5 where the piano comes in and it's like, gong, 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 and it's like way low and down there. And you're like, yes, why isn't piano in orchestra more? Guitar doesn't have volume um, unless you have a bunch of guitars. And then if you have a bunch of guitars, then you've got a bunch of these instruments that have an attack like no other instrument in the orchestra that's going to cut through everything. But only that attack is what you'll hear because there's no way to amplify the sound without having amplifiers or, you know, amps on stage. But then you can't have hardwired, elect- you know, acoustic, mic'd up, Guitar, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's just it just doesn't really fit well so, in so the orchestral in that, world that way. Okay, so in your instance, the attack coincides with the ability to keep up with other instruments because I get the sound. I get that it's not loud enough. That's For one sure. thing. Yeah, but the attack thing seems like you know he he compared it to like well you don't hear trombones do blah, blah, blah. and I was like well yeah you do. I mean, yeah. you do. And so... Yeah, that wasn't really explained very well because you can have a wide array of attacks on a trombone, for instance. You can play really sharp and loud, like just pop. You can just pop a sound. Or you can come in really... You can sneak in with a trombone. You can sneak in with a violin, with any other stringed, bowed stringed instrument. But the second the strings start plucking their strings... Like if they start doing pizzicato, which we've talked mm-hmm. about in ep- an episode before, um, that's a very specific and sharp attack, right? And it's basically the only way you can play a guitar. You can strum it, which is still, again, plucking all the strings, mm-hmm. or you can literally finger pick it with fingers, and that's, again, plucking the strings. So it's just such an out-of-place tone you know, I mean... Well, and that, that's, I guess, the argument for... Because another 
statement he makes is like tradition. Well, it's traditionally, and, and what you just said, you're like, well, it's just such a weird sound. It's like, yeah. well, right now, and I just am living so deep in a world of natty wine and have been for some yeah. time that it's like, that's what it's about is without being faulty, pushing the envelopes of tradition to say, look at how Pinot Noir can actually smell in Burgundy when it's not made according to tradition that's incredible but can get really banal. Mm -hmm. And so that I would just argue that like the pushing of the envelope is an interesting concept yep. it, with this theme yeah. that we're, you know. Yeah, and I mean, if you just think about like where the guitar developed and where the bulk of Western classical music developed, mm -hmm. those were not in the same geographic place. Yeah. The guitar literally had its birthplace and development in Spain, yeah. in southern Spain, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's... You know what I have to say to that? What? Ole. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> High five the motherland. But, yes. But that's another, I think, significant point. And then the guitar also then, as Spaniards moved westward, mm -hmm. uh, the guitar went with them. And so it also has this whole rich storied history in, in Mexico and Latin America as well. Interesting. So, you know, I mean, it's just... Well, so can we, now that we're talking about the history of the guitar and why historically it's not in an orchestra, can I history of Sherry? Oh, please. Start, start yeah. history Can I have Sherry? a drink of it first? <laughs> yes. <laughs> The history of Sherry is kind of a muddled one. There's a, there's a lot kind of coinciding at once and just like the history of all regions of wine. Um, it's not just about people wanting to make something delicious. It's usually about something historical that's happening. And in, in, in this time, you know, in this day and age, and we're going as far back as the Phoenicians in like the 1100 BCE, there's like pillaging and raping and, you know, all kinds of things that are bloody and malicious. But we'll, we'll start there. So the Phoenicians, <laughs> who are actually, um, they were a bit more Pacific than I'm giving them credit for, but they founded what we'll call Shera, X-E-R-A, so this area of southern Andalusia and southern Spain, um, a long time ago, like around that time, the 1100s. And you know, we fast forward through the Carthaginians and the Romans and the Visigoths and the Vandals because those are all just bloody and just not <laughs> fun times um, and persecution and whatnot. Ladies, no place in that time. You were getting no love in that time. Mm. So let's fast forward to where it becomes interesting for wine at least. The Moors were in this area and, and conquered the area known as Andalusia in, the, in 711 of the Common Era. And they were there and throughout a lot of Spain until about the 15th century. What's interesting during this time is although the Moors, you know, wanted to conquer different religions and peoples, they also at times allowed them to practice their religion and allowed them because they knew that that would be in their best interests. Like they'll pay us taxes, they're making wine, they're paying us for the amount of wine they make. Granted, the sultans were probably getting just drunk on all that stuff too, even though they <laughs> technically shouldn't be, right? Yeah. So you, you do have some elements of during all kinds of bloodshed over the course of these centuries, you do have some times where there's some tolerance, which is an interesting part of the history. But the Moors called this area Shara. They called it it looks like S-E-R-I-S, but they pronounced it Sherish. And that's where, you know, this area known as Jerez, where Sherry is made. And in Spain, you don't go order a Sherry, you order a Jerez. 
J-E-R-E-Z. You order un vino de Jerez, and you, then they might say, well, do you want this style or that style? Will you spell it again and say that? Because yeah. I didn't mean to talk under you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, J-E-R-E-Z. So it's pronounced Jerez. You're ordering, uh, can I get a vino de Jerez? Can I get a sherry wine? And then they might ask, which style do you want, right? But that's where we think the American translation came from, was this time where the Moors called it sherish, which is pretty fascinating. That's amazing. Yeah. And after the Moors were run out of Spain or throughout the course of them being run out of Spain during the 14th and 15th century, I mean, what else was happening in the world? A lot of people from Portugal, Italy, Spain were all traveling to the quote-unquote new world. And so there are claims that sherry, albeit not maybe tasting exactly like what we're tasting today, was the the first wine of the new world, perhaps, you know, because they weren't really growing grapes for wine before the new world came there, supposedly, yeah. right, and brought wine to, you know, for the sacrament, let's be honest, to get wasted and not think about the flus that we're bringing around and everything else that's happening at the time. But the way that I mentioned that sherry is fortified with a neutral spirit, the reason they think that may have been why that transpired was there was a time where it was done for stability. You know, wine's traveling, so let's stabilize it by putting some stronger spirit so it doesn't go bad on the trip over. What's interesting is that likely was developed because the Moors were into distillation. They knew a lot about distillation. That's where we get the word alcohol, comes from their word alcohol, which they were like making makeup and through distillation, like all kinds of amazing processes, drink drinks, all kinds of things, oils. And they surmise that the fortifying of what would become sherry started with the knowledge of distillation that came from the Moors. So I'm going to stop there and drink some because I'm getting thirsty talking about distillation. (laughs) Mm. So there's wine made. There's a neutral grape spirit made. And the two are then blended together. Yes, but we we aren't yet out of the 1400s. (laughs) But yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Columbus actually was in and around Sanlúcar when he went to the New World, which is kind of interesting. And then I'll, yeah, we'll we'll get into how it's made. I just want to point out that England and Spain had some pretty rough relations in the 1500s. And when sometimes sherry is called sack, like my grandma may have called it sack as opposed to sherry, dry sack, like S-A-C-K. Oh, okay. And that word comes from in the 1500s, there were a ton of pillaging of Spanish, entire Spanish fleets were obliterated by English ships. What they were known for stealing most was sherry. (laughs) I mean, they stole a lot of treasure and money, of course, but like- Sherry was just as valuable. In 1587, Sir Francis Drake pillaged a whole fleet of ships and was known to walk away with three or sail away with 3,000 pipes of sherry. So butts, so we'll say barrels of sherry called pipes back in the day. And so there was a time where they were like, they were known abroad, like they were known in the new world. And they were known, not made like this, of course, but they were known in England. The English were drinking it, the French were drinking it, people in the New World were drinking it. And, of course, boom and then bust has to do with why sherry is made the way it is today. And I'll talk about that after we listen to a little more. That's my Spanish guitar verbal. It's not too great. So we heard some modern classical guitar played by Andre Segovia, actually, and another guitarist, but... That was music that was written 
probably right around the turn of the century, 1860s, 70s, who knows, somewhere around there. Let's listen to what a guitar was before that, which was considered the Baroque guitar. And Baroque guitars are very different than a classical, modern classical guitar. Um, first of all, instead of six strings, like you have on a modern classical guitar, there were five strings, four of which were doubled. So there's a, like it, like you would think if you see a 12-string guitar, how yep. there's just six strings all up, right? Um, and also the tuning on the Baroque guitar was a little different than the way a classic, modern classical guitar is tuned in that it doesn't go from either all the way low to all the way high or all the way high to all the way low, depending on which way you're strumming. There, it, it kind of twists around a little bit in there. And that gives the Baroque guitar also a unique sound on top of the fact that some of these strings are doubled. Cool. So let's have a listen to uh, music from another Spanish composer, Gaspar Sanz, Gaspar Sanz. And he was born sometime in 1640-ish and lived till about 1710, which is smack dab in the Baroque era. The Baroque era runs from around 1600 to about 1750. So the Baroque guitar sounds a little bit like this. This is a very famous piece by Gaspar Sands. Emily's already happier because we're in the Baroque era. Yes. guitar invented because it sounds obviously there's a flair and an air that's reminiscent of the what we would consider the modern classical guitar mm -hmm. but it sounds like more I don't know celestial more regal more like it could be played in front of a counter countess whereas the other one the, the the modern classical guitar sounds there's a somber tone it sounds more and I don't mean this as a pejorative, but like poor, you know, just like, um, so is, was it invented somewhere else? It was also invented in Spain, the Baroque guitar. And one of the things that you're hearing, and I love that you're hearing it, the celestial quality is earlier when I was talking about the way it's tuned, how it doesn't just go high to low, that allows performers to be able to play scales in a way that you can't play them on a modern guitar. Yeah. And it allows notes to continue to ring as a result. And so you hear as they're playing all these stepwise notes, all these ringing tones, and it just happens all the time in Spanish guitar music because they Baroque guitar music because that was such a beautiful sound. And they call it, what's Little Bells? Campa Campanillas. Campanillas. That's what they call it. Oh, okay. Little Bells. Huh. And so you're very astute to pick up on that quality to it um, because you hear it 
all over the place in Baroque guitar. And if we listen to this same piece, which we're going to, on a modern classical guitar. Oh, yeah. I know, right? Okay, let's do it. Uh, you still hear that quality in the classical guitar, but not the same. And it just doesn't, it can't have the same flair yeah. that the Baroque guitar does. So let's, again, just remind ourselves what it sounds like on the Baroque guitar quickly. So this is that same piece by Gaspar Sands that we just heard on Baroque guitar, again on Baroque guitar. So let's listen to that real quick. it's almost like a harp yeah I mean it just rings yeah like a harp meets a mandolin yeah yep so now let's listen to uh, a modern classical guitar playing the same piece by Gaspar Sands this is by another tremendously famous 20th century and 21st century uh, uh, classical guitarist named Julian Bream, who actually literally just passed away at the beginning of August 2020. So here is Canarios by Gaspar Sands, played on a modern classical guitar by Julian Bream. just choppier. It's yep. still beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're just like two different It's two different instruments. It's yep. not, you know, exactly. The, the classical guitar projects a little better, has yeah. a little more clarity, but it lacks the ringing tones because of the way it's tuned yeah. and... The, because it has single strings, right? It only has six strings instead of nine. Mm-hmm. So yeah. This is a perfect segue to talk about... You know, we, we were talking a lot about the past of Sherry, yeah, the history, and we're talking about the Baroque guitar bleeding over into the modern guitar, which is amazing, the modern uh, classical guitar, to be able to hear the difference. So let's just, I wanted to use this as a segue to talk about, you know, why Sherry is made the way it is. Yeah. Because it's really interesting that Sherry is blended the way it is, that it is fortified the way it is, and due to the fact that Sherry was, you know, there was phylloxera the louse that came and ravaged vineyards around Europe in the late 1800s. Obviously, it affected the Hedith region. There were a lot of adulteration of sherry. There was a lot of, like, fraud and greed that happened that happens all over the world with wine still to this day. Um, But it made – they decided to make it a law – that for because people were like stockpiling and that kind of that got illegal and they were like nefariously blending stuff, they said you have to have a three to one law. For every leader that you're going to bring out into the world, you have to have three leaders in backstock. Producers started to decide, okay, well, I need to have some sort of consistency then with my product. But what also, I mean, I don't know, what's the first thing you think of if I'm going to tell you you have to have three leaders in stock for every leader you sell? I mean, that's just a tremendous amount of inventory. Yeah. Yeah, that's money. That's yeah. costly. And so that only allowed for the people with the ching ching to right. become part of this industry, which is a sad thing. That's changing now. There, you know, People are starting to try to release cool things and not giving a hoot if they're part of the, the sherry name, you know, but they're making things a very similar way, which is pretty interesting. And what are those things called? 
Fortified wines? Do they just call they it just fortified call it wine? Fortified wine, okay. or they make it like this with flor, and they don't fortify it, which is interesting. Whoa. Um, yeah, which is, I mean, because you can, you can flor is meant to stabilize. It's also can control flor, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself. So, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, no, it's okay. So when we taste a sherry, because of that three to one ratio, we can glean that when you buy a bottle of manzanilla, in this case la cigarrera you know that this is a minimum of three-year-old sherry is in your glass. And at times, because they've run the scales, and they've, which means they've moved things around from a younger nursery to an older solera to then bottle, there could be five, six, seven-year-old if you have a richer seller, we'll say, with backstock. In the sherry region, it is very hot, um, just to talk a little bit about climate. And the soils here, thankfully, they're this calcareous, um, very like white limestone soil, very puffy. And it helps a, very, a region that is quite hot remain acidic. So the, the wine it potentially is like great, you know, to, to be fresh. The main grape in the sherry region is called Palomino. And what happens is you when you started to ask, because I, I didn't want to get too ahead of myself, but I wanted to talk about when sherry first starts to ferment after about six months, they'll go and they will look to see how much flor has grown. And if that wine has a lot of very thick flor, and they know this, right? Before they kind of pitched it to sommeliers like it was a mystery, but they know what's – or they would just pitch floor, just like yeast strains of floor in, and then the other ones they wouldn't, but depending on what sells best, right? But so if you have thick floor growth, you're fortifying it with what's called mita de mitad. It's a high-octane neutral grape spirit with some mature sherry, so it doesn't shock your new wine, right, your very young wine. And if you have a thick – layer of this yeast film, you'll only fortify it to 15.5-ish percent. And that way, flour can keep growing. If I'm sorry. Yeah. When you say thick, how thick? Like five inches? Like no, two like, millimeters? Like, like anywhere from, I would say, good, healthy flour growth is like an inch. Neat. But you can have very thin, and it comes and goes depending on where you are in the region okay. and the season. Okay. So in a very humid place, you're going to have a lot more flour growth. So like there was a point where I was tasting so much sherry that I could taste, you could start to say, like, if I'm tasting on a barrel, you'd know, like, if you're tasting barrel samples, I should say, should say you can notice, like, oh, this for, comes from this neighborhood because it's on this part of the city versus that part of the city that has is lower, and you can tell, like, there's more oxidation because the floor is less or more. It's pretty intense. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, so you have your fortified... To fifteen five. What happens Alcohol when level yes, content. yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah. What, what happens when you don't have a lot of floor growth and it's kind of thin, maybe even non-existent? You fortify it to about eighteen percent, so that instead of living in a biological, meaning at the mercy of all these beautiful yeasts, now you're in an oxidative environment. You don't have that protection from that yeast that is creating a barrier between the air and the wine, and also giving it all of these different acids and aromas and flavors. Now you're just wine in contact with air because you've been fortified to a little bit of a higher alcohol level. And that's where we get Oloroso, the Oloroso style of sherry. So in, in a biological type of sherry, you're either drinking a manzanilla or a fino, which will always have the acetaldehyde, they call it, like that those nutty, hay, bread-like aromas, yeasty aromas. 
I should say, I don't want to be remiss by saying amontillado is a style that has experienced flor, but after about, I don't know, six to eight years, either flor starts to die out naturally or flor is, it's not refreshed because if you keep refreshing these manzanillas and these finos with new wine, new wine, new wine, you're going to keep giving that flor a reason to live, right? All this fresh new juice, sugars to eat up. If you don't refresh it, that flor is going to die out after about six to eight years, and that's where you get an amontillado. You get a wine that looks kind of brownish, like an oloroso, has a little bit of that oxidative aging, but it's lived the majority of its life under a veil of flor. So you have fino, manzanilla, and amontillado that are in a realm of being biologically aged, affected by flor. Okay. And then you have oloroso that is not aged under much flor, at least for the majority of its life, it's lived in an oxidative environment. Amazing. And they call it oloroso, like oloroso translates to the word olor, means smelly. So oloroso means, or olor means smell, so oloroso means smelly. And you'll notice right away, it's like, granted, now we're tasting... Um, I used to represent these guys, and this is a very pricey sherry. This is uh, Bodegas Alonso, their Oloroso that comes from a historical set of a person who used to rear and sell sherries called Pedro Romero. This is his 60 to 70-year-old Oloroso, which is pretty intense. Um, But I wanted to just smell how that smells nutty and buttery. And then you go back to the manzanilla yeah. and you smell all the hay and all the like bread dough and all the little bit salty. Yeah. And it smells and, like a bakery compared to this. Yeah, yeah. Right. Compared to the oloroso. It's, yeah. It smells like you should almost put the oloroso on top of, <laughs> you know, the yeah. nuts and the butter and all that on yeah. top of the bakery. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And the color, too, we should point out, is much different between these two. Because this first one, you could say is, you could hand me this and be like, have this white wine. And I would drink it and immediately know that's not what it is. But well, it, oh, Wait, oh, al contraire. It is white wine. Well, it is, yes. But you wouldn't know it's fortified with floor. Not by yes. looking at it. Yeah, yeah, correct. And this other one is much browner. Yep, so w- with white wines, as they oxidize, they take up, um, they do gain in color. Oh, that's right. Um, we could talk about catechins and stuff like that, but we won't. They Red wines get lighter and white wines get darker. And so that's what we're seeing when we see an Oloroso and, and to some extent in Amontillado that has had a little bit of oxidative aging, we'll see that golden or that white wine straw color turn into like a more of a burnt yeah. kind of caramel, caramel looking color taste yeah. and tell me what you think. Okay. Olorosos, nowadays a lot of cheap Oloroso has been back sweetened with a little of a sweet grape called Pedro Jimenez, but good quality Oloroso is usually just as bone dry as a Manzanilla or a Fino. Saying oloroso doesn't mean it's going to be sweet. It actually means it's going to be just have those caramely and oxidative and nutty, walnutty notes, pecans, etc. but be dry. It has, I mean, it takes you on a ride. This one, this older oloroso does. Yeah. Compared to the, this first one, ciga, what is it? La cigarrera, or it looks like la cigarrera. Yeah. 
And we're, we're tasting these. So La Cigarrera, they've been around uh, since like the 1700s, mid-1700s or so is when they were established in the village of San Lucar. And Bodegas Alonso is a, quite a new project by two brothers from Sevilla who they purchased the old Pedro Romero cellars and all of its contents, which included a few different uh, very famous and incredible almacenistas. And they've been very slowly releasing these sherries because they are literally, um, you know, they're like the key holders to a lot of history like this that hasn't been blended with a lot of younger sherry. Like sometimes I, I mentioned this is a 60 to 70 year old Oloroso. A lot of times that can mean if you see that on a label that there's some 40 year old juice and some 50 year old juice and mm -hmm. that the average age is, you know, 60 to 70 years old. With this, that's not the case. The youngest wine in here is 60 to 70 years old, and that's just it. That's incredible. what's in here. Yeah. It tastes incredible. And it's unsulfured and unfiltered. Um, a lot of times sherry is filtered. A lot of times sherry is highly manipulated, but it's like sterile filtered, chill filtered, you name it, sulfured up the wazoo. Bodegas Alonso is, at least with this line, not not doing that, which is Amazing. pretty, pretty cool. Mm. Do you have a preference in the two or is it just like they're so different mm -hmm. like like i was saying a minute ago you could hand me this and i could think it was white wine if i tasted those side by side i would you could convince me that this is not cherry i mean all i want with these are like i want a plate of fresh tomatoes jamon i want some olives i want some marcona almonds like something super traditional i want some gazpacho i wouldn't mind a steak still i mean yes that's later <laughs> i mean that's that's after the <laughs> first course that. yeah that's after the first course they're both so different and so delicious. Like, I love the cigarilla, cigarillo. La. La. Cigarrera. Can you spin the bottle so I can see the word? <laughs> oh, see, I thought there were like L's in there and shit. Okay. La. <laughs> La cigarrera. Cigarrera. Yes. Yes. Is delicious and refreshing. And I like that it's a little chilled, beautiful, um... I think it's delightful, and I would love to have that with a meal as an after-dinner drink. Love the La Cigarrera. What's interesting is people do have sherry as an after-dinner, but mm -hmm. a lot of people have sherry before dinner because it's oh. salty and acidic, and it, you know, look, listen to the foods I just mentioned. Right. All those things open up your appetite. There's like the, the beginner, you know. The Omo, om, shoot, what is it? <laughs> The Alonso Oloroso. The Alonso Oloroso is so delicious because it's so packed full of flavor. There's just so much happening in there that it just, it makes me want more. Um, I just am like, what am I going to try? What am I going to notice this time? What am I going to notice this time? So I can't, I, there's no way I could choose. They're so different and they're both so, they're both delicious. Well, I, and, I think and, it's great. And I, I, you know, sort of it, maybe this is a little bit of a disservice to this this um, kind of exhibit of styles because we're comparing La Cigarrera is a delicious little $15 half bottle of sherry. Yeah. And this Oloroso, it happened to be, it's a sample because I was running around New York and Seattle and all these places selling it years ago. I've got about two inches left in the bottle. And I mean, this is, this sells for like 200 euros an ounce. So, you know, they're kind of apples and oranges, but at the same time, you look at the color and mm -hmm. you can tell the difference between, you know, 
that biological style versus oxidative style, the noses and what they deliver, and then the palates, of course, what they deliver as well, regardless of the fact that one is like, yes, extremely complex and the other is deliciously awesome and simple. Yeah. So. Yeah, they're amazing. What a treat. Yeah, one of my best, and what's cool is one of my best memories, you know, a lot of people haven't, that that have even been to the Sherry region and have tasted out of barrel. You know, a lot of fortunate sommeliers have done that. Um, both of these owners, thankfully, have let me actually use, they call they have a tool called uh, the Venintia that is made out of different different things depending on what region you're in. But um, both the Capataz, the like cellar master at Cigarrera and, uh, you know, Fran, the owner of Bodegas uh, Alonso, have let me go in and like, dip the stick, the venencia in the barrel, and you can feel it stops and it rests on the floor. And the first time I remember, because I've done it several times, I mean, it's just like speaking like an asshole over here because I just, but it's so amazing. I just like puncture that and what that feels like when it punctures that floor is just like <laughs> such an amazing feeling. And um, yeah, I don't know. Incredible. What an incredible process. I mean, Sherry, like, it's to me, it's a fascinating process because who discovered that? I just, let's let this yeast pile up on the, like, mmm. You know, I mean, you're just <laughs> Well, I mean, like, that's maybe, like, desperate. <laughs> like, you know, you're making, like, kombucha. Whoever yeah, invented that, you exactly. know? Like, someone just, yeah, like, just a some happy mushroom grew. Yeah, and I think yeah. people probably, like, floor <laughs> happened and then the fortification happened and the solera were all separate, right? They sure. all happened at different times and it was, like, wow, what if we combine that and that? That's deli- Oh, what if we combine that and that and that? Then we have, you know, consistency, flavorful, controlled, right? If you're dis- if you're adding a fortifying agent, you're now you're con- yeah. putting something in a box to control it. Yeah. Um, is a fascinating process. It is. Let's guitar. Let's guitar. So let's listen to an example of what it means when a guitar plays with an orchestra. So there are... We've talked about concertos before. A concerto is a piece of music that has a soloist, that has an orchestra behind it. So, um, you know, piano concerto, there's a piano on stage with an orchestra, trumpet concerto, trumpet on stage with an orchestra, guitar concerto, guitar on stage with an orchestra. A classical composer named Mauro Giuliani, who was Italian, uh, wrote 150 pieces of music for guitar, and like 700 of those were concertos. So he wrote just like a ton of uh, music for guitar. And when you listen to this, it's very, very, it sounds nothing like what we've just heard, right? It's not a solo piece. This is for a classical orchestra. So it's very, sounds very classical era, which is about 1750 to about 1830 or so. So we're right in there. Giuliani was born in 1781, died in 1829. So this is Beethoven's time, this is Haydn's time, this is Mozart's time, sort of. In typical classical concerto style, there's a huge long orchestral introduction before we even hear the guitar. So we're going to, you know, you're hearing that under us right now, I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead to the guitar part, and you're going to hear how the orchestra basically has to drop out more or less in order for the guitar to be heard. Okay. You can't, they can't, it'll just bury the guitarist if they all play together. Okay.
So the orchestra is back there just very lightly playing. But I feel like they're getting it. You know, they're, they're definitely, they're, they're getting it, but they're just cognizant of just like any orchestra. Let's let the solo shine. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, how often do we hear a pianist up there just getting it and all of a sudden the orchestra's like, oh. I mean, they're, they're always, all the time. Well, I mean, but I feel like they usually, everybody's got a level that they're playing to allow the soloist of to course. shine. And that's a perfect, They're that's not a, doing it just because the guitar is this measly instrument. Well, they're, you know. But they're never going to achieve the kind of volume that they could with many other types of solo instruments that can project. This is where I say less is more people. That can be just, I think that can be just fine. Because in the element of like wanting to talk about, because as I'm hearing this, my first question to you is, because I love hearing these together. Oh, it's amazing. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of examples. It's not an anomaly to have a guitar concerto with an orchestra. Go ahead. So what, do you think that the guitar, as we're listening to this, doesn't sound sophisticated? Oh, I think the guitar is tremendously sophisticated. And that list that we alluded to earlier, when you called the guy an idiot and then backtracked, he's like, the guitar oh, hold is on, more... I ha- Wait, hold on. I have it quoted. Guitar is not sophisticated enough to be in the orchestra. If you look at the other instruments in the orchestra, you'll feel that there's a difference. No, that's just... That's that's like the assimilation of hearing violins and... I mean, that's just... Yeah, that's just inaccurate. That's like saying Bordeaux is more sophisticated because they're driving Mercedes around yeah. their chateaus. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, that's just... No. no. Guitar is tremendously sophisticated. It has its own, as I mentioned earlier, just huge history and vast repertoire of its own that is delightful and yeah. complicated and sophisticated and all of those things. And... Moreover, you can transcribe a lot of great music for guitar. Like uh, we were watching a video of a Haydn string quartet that has been transcribed for guitar and turned into a guitar concerto. So there are a lot of... That's interesting, yeah. That's very cool too. You take a string quartet, which is violin, violin, cello, viola. (laughs) That kind of violin, violin, viola, cello. And making that work on a guitar with an orchestra. That's very cool. Um, You know, Haydn didn't write for guitar. Beethoven didn't write for guitar. Bach didn't write for guitar, Baroque guitar. But a lot of that music works beautifully on guitar. So, you know, I mean, that I was really surprised to see that comment. And of course, that that list is not the be-all, end-all of why guitar isn't in an orchestra. But just to think that someone thinks that. It was like one of the first, you know, I I read like several different pages. Yeah, yeah. To, that talked about why guitar is usually not included in a larger ensemble. Yeah, of course. But that was the one that stuck with me I know, most you're like, because really? it was he obviously has his reasons for believing those things and it doesn't yeah. make him wrong. It makes him a little ridiculous is what I Yeah. you know, in my my opinion. It was an interesting opinion to hold, but yeah. Yeah. Because let's listen actually if we can we go on to the Manuel Ponce. Please. Yes. Because Ponce <laughs> Ponce is great. Um Because, and this is another, I think, valid reason for the somewhat separation, if we're going to call it that, between classical guitar and the orchestral world of classical music. Because a great deal, many of those composers that I mentioned who contributed to that giant body of work that exists for solo guitar out there Mm -hmm. and guitar ensembles and such, a lot of them really just wrote for guitar. And then you have someone like especially when we get into the 20th century, um, Manuel Ponce, 
who wrote for orchestra, he wrote chamber music, mm-hmm. he wrote solo piano music. Ponce, much like other composers that we've talked about in the past, like Bartok or Grieg, was very interested in Mexican folk music. And so he arranged a lot of folk music, folk songs for various instruments and things. He also wrote a lot of his own songs. So when I say the word song in the context of classical music, it literally means voice with words and some kind of accompaniment. Uh, So he wrote loads of songs and he wrote loads of guitar music. So he really spread out and knew a whole bunch of different types of composers around the world. And I think that also kind of bridges a gap when Mm -hmm. a composer does more than just that specific instrument. So uh, anyway, Ponce, uh, very close friends with the guitarist I mentioned earlier, Andres Segovia, um, who, again, a Spanish guitarist, one of the most famous guitarists of the 20th century. And Ponce wrote music for Segovia. They were homies. Um, and he lived, I just want to say, 1882 to 1948. Those were some easy years. <laughs> Spanish history <laughs> and Mexican history, let's be honest. Yeah, Whoa. well, and world history, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah just, geez. Um, so let's listen to this um, really lovely and very brief prelude written by Ponce uh, in C major. Here it is. so much. I've listened to this so many times uh, in the last week, and I love everything about it because the harmony is progressive. You can tell that it's not the classical era. If you're familiar with harmonic rules and just the history of harmony, it's definitely not anything but 20th century. And yet it has, you can hear Mexico in there, I Mm -hmm. think. I mean, you can just hear that yeah it's not spain it's not spain no and it's it's just absolutely gorgeous and perfectly written for that instrument speaking of which another very important point that needs to be said is that this person that we've kind of wailed on a little bit did not even mention is that virtually every single composer you could sit and name to me right now played piano. There are so few composers who didn't. Berlioz is an exception. Uh, Hector Berlioz, a French composer in the Romantic era, not he played guitar. Yeah, but you're so right. I'm thinking of like Mozart and Beethoven and Ravel and all the big Piano, 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 piano. Stravinsky, Prokot. Let's Russia. Let's yeah. go to Russia. Let's go to Scandinavia. Name those guys. Albany, let's name Piepol. the Americans. Let's, let's name. name these. The, I mean, <laughs> seriously, you're just, yeah. you could name them. You'd just run out of names long before you landed on one that didn't play piano. So I think that's another also important distinction because piano, again, it's it's tr- super duper a solo instrument. Like you can go to piano but recitals a lot of, all day. A lot of a lot of compositions, piano first, and then they were 
expanded upon? A number of compositions were, were done that way, written on piano, then turned into orchestral works, or just turned into orchestral works from piano, not even written. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot, I think, many important reasons for why there exists this little divide, if you want to call it that. Yeah. yeah. And we were talking just as much, you know, like how in Spain, like what was ha- like what was happening in Europe, like why the birthplace of, we'll say, I guess birthplace of classical music is ridiculous, but to talk about the eras that a lot of times we focus on the show, Baroque, classical, romantic, and modern. Germanic tradition is yep. often, yeah. Yep. And so we d- we're not, you know... We just the Pyrenees, it mm-hmm. kind of gets gets cut off in the Pyrenees or maybe a little bit above that. Yeah. And so this element of like the like there are some amazing classical composers. Like I'm thinking of Joaquin Rodrigo, but he was again later, you know, and mm-hmm. yep. he he was doing classical, you know, this classical guitar element, but he had a lot of compositions that had nothing to do with classical guitar. And also, one more important thing is that nationalism, a nationalism movement, didn't exist until after the modern classical guitar was really being written anyway. Because if Edvard Grieg had been born in 1800 and been writing, let's say... As opposed to... As opposed to... 100 years later. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't born that much later, but it he would have sounded different because mm-hmm. he he it would have been much more in a Germanic style. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I mean, that's what everyone was emulating, the Beethoven, the Mozart, the Haydn. Okay, so Austria too, but you know what I mean? Like yep. I mean, and and that's interesting because when you listen to the the birthing of modern classical guitar, again, being all in Spain and sounding Spanish, which is so different than what Western classical music sounds like. There are just so many fascinating reasons for why they've kind of stayed separate. But again, so many beautiful examples of the two being together too in these concerti. And there's a lot of chamber music with guitar in it. And, um, you know, it can can work really beautifully too. Well, I love that we've done this episode because when I think of like walking through this is the first summer in I can't tell you how many years that I have not gone to Spain because of COVID, which is smart um, that I didn't go in the midst of COVID to one of the hot spots of COVID. <laughs> but I I do, when I go, um, lately I've been going to the South often because it is a place that the music really speaks to me and the there's a new kind of um, emerging natty wine scene, which is really fun, as well as the historical place that all my natty wine friends trash on. They are all like, hit it, they're so, such a bastard of the wine, or whatever. And I just, when I listen to it, I, it just makes me very happy. It feels like home in a way that's weird because I'm not from there. But so it's been very, uh, I, I just know what it feels like to park my car and I know where I like to walk and I always like explore new places, but like I just, kind of brings me back there for a brief moment here in the booth, which I'm very thankful for. So, Well, and I'm thankful for you for suggesting this topic because you you just randomly, you're like, why is classical guitar different? And I'm like, who cares? (laughs) I mean, I wasn't like that, but I I really was not overly excited to to approach the topic. And once I did, I was just like so happy. And I, I just loved every moment of, of working on this episode was uh, just a pleasure because it's, it's a special thing that happened 
in the world of music was the invention of the guitar. And yeah, to floor. To Jerez. To Antonio de Torres Jurado. To Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. On that same page, you can find a link to the June Media website, which is where you can find some merchandise Mm -hmm. like hoodies and T-shirts and stickers. And we're also on Instagram at Scores and Pours. Consider supporting the musicians that we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sir Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.